Good morning. Welcome again to Hiawatha. We are still glad you're here. My name is Jesse. I'm one of the elders here, and one of the privileges of being an elder is getting to preach a couple times a year, which obviously I'm doing today since I'm standing here. And it's great for me. You may not know this, uh, but in the back on the wall, there's a clock so that when we're up here preaching, we can kind of have a general idea of what time it is and how long we've been going. And the clock says it's only 1030. And the service doesn't have to be done until 12.30, so I can preach for like an hour and 45 minutes. So this is going to be great. Uh, Seriously, though, we are in a sermon series on John. We're closer to the beginning than the end. Uh, It's a long book. We will finish around Easter of next year. So still a ways to go. We're in chapter 5. And the title of today's sermon is Those Who Hear Will Live. So I will pray, and then we will see what people are hearing, and how they are living. Jesus, we thank you uh, that you spoke to us at all, because you didn't have to. We thank you that you've spoken words that bring life. I pray as I preach that all of us would hear your word, would believe your word, and would live. Amen. John 5, 25 through 29. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. 25. There's a lot of cool stuff in this verse. One of the things that's interesting that you might not notice is, where is the Son of Man? He's near the dead. And he's close enough to the dead that they can hear his voice. He's not far from them. He's near enough to them that they can hear his voice. He's gone to where the dead are, and he's going to speak to them. So why do we go to where the dead are? If you've ever gone to a cemetery to visit the gravestone of a relative or a friend, why do we do that? We don't go to talk to the person. They're dead. We're not going to have a conversation. We don't go to get advice from them or tell them what's going on in our life. But we do that sometimes. Why do we do that? Because of love. We go to the cemetery, to the gravestone, to visit the grave of a person that we have loved, a friend or a relative. That's why we do it. Keep that in mind. For Jesus does the same thing. He goes to where the dead are because he loves them. Reading this, if you have read any of the Old Testament or are all familiar with it, this idea of the dead hearing the voice of the Son of God and then living may remind you of Ezekiel 37. So Ezekiel was a prophet in the Old Testament, and in Ezekiel 37 he has a vision. So God is talking to him, and all of a sudden he sees this valley. And this valley is filled with human bones. And God says to Ezekiel, Ezekiel, do you think these bones can live? And now it's 37 chapters in, more than half the book. So Ezekiel, rather than answering yes or no, says, you know what, here's what I'll say. God, you alone know. It's like, I'm not going to try and answer this question. You know the answer. 
tell us what it is. And then God says they can indeed live. And then God brings the bones to life. And it's this cool picture where the bones kind of stand up and then it says that sinews and tendons and blood vessels and everything come onto the bones and then flesh forms on the bones. So from the inside out, these bones are kind of reassembled like building a Lego set or something. And then the bodies are all put together and then God breathes life into them and they come to life. This is the picture we have here in John 5.25. Because when we think of the dead coming to life, we might think of a medical situation where someone's just died, they rush them to the hospital, and if it's a short enough amount of time since they died, and if they've died for certain reasons, it's possible in some situations to bring the dead back to life. You can restart the heart that stopped, you can reintroduce breathing in someone who's not breathing. We, in small ways, lowercase, in certain situations, can bring the dead back to life. But if someone brings in a pile of bones, the doctor doesn't say, all right, this is going to take a little longer, but I can do this. I can bring this person back. No, they're done. But that's what God does. This isn't someone, God isn't bringing people back to life who've been dead for like 30 seconds, or who, or who are just mostly dead and slightly alive. These are piles of bones that God is going to resurrect. God brings the dead to life. Also, notice here, how does he do it? He doesn't have to get down and like reassemble everything a piece at a time with his hands. He doesn't have to consult any plans or blueprints or anything like that. All he does is speak and the dead live. Jesus' voice is stronger than death. Just his voice is strong enough to reverse death. He can speak a word and stop death and reverse it. He's going to show us this, spoiler alert, for John 11. In John 11, one of Jesus' friends dies. His name is Lazarus. And Jesus goes to the house of the family who are in mourning, obviously, because their brother died. And Jesus goes to mourn with them. And then Jesus goes and walks from the house to the tomb where Lazarus is buried, and everyone follows, Lazarus, or follows Jesus there. And when Jesus gets there, he tells people, roll the stone away. And Jesus' sisters say, yeah, you know, that's not a good idea. He's been in that tomb like three or four days. The body's starting to decay and smell like we shouldn't do that. But Jesus insists. And so people roll the stone away from this tomb. And then Jesus doesn't go into the tomb to touch Lazarus. He doesn't go in and do anything else. He stands outside the tomb, calls out in a loud voice, and says to Lazarus, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus, who had been dead for half a week, gets up and walks out of that tomb. Jesus' voice reverses death. Jesus' voice is stronger than death. So he, physically, he does that once to give us a picture of what he's doing here for all who are dead. And this hour is now here. An hour is coming and is now here. Right now, those who are dead hear the voice of God and those who hear will live. This is not talking about physical death. We're going to see at the end of the passage there's something that talks specifically about physical death. This is talking about spiritual death. This is death of separation from God. This is death that comes from sin. Right now, today, if you're here in this room and you're not a believer, you are dead. Obviously not physically, but in other ways, you are dead. But also, right now, if you're here in this room, you're hearing me read the words of God. You're hearing the voice of God. Hear that and live. Hear that 
and walk out of that death to Christ into life. So, two other things we see in this passage. We see the idea of life. And we see different voices, the voice of the Son of God. People of Hiawatha, where are you looking for satisfaction? Where are you looking for life? Where do you look to get fulfillment, to get satisfaction, to get worth? Where do you go for life? To another person? To an activity? To your job? Whatever it may be, wherever you go, where are you looking for satisfaction in life? Are you looking for that in Jesus Christ? Jesus says in John 7, this is at the end of a feast in Jerusalem, there's a lot of people around. He stands up and says in a loud voice, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Those of you who feel dead, those of you who feel thirsty, those of you who are hungry, come to me. Let me give you life. Let me satisfy your desires. Let me satisfy your hungers and thirsts. There is no other full satisfaction. We know that. Probably you ate food yesterday, but today you'll be hungry again and you'll have to eat again. The food was satisfying, but it wasn't fully satisfying forever. That's not how it works. Jesus says in another part of John, whoever drinks what I give and feasts on what I give will never hunger and thirst again. Jesus gives a satisfaction. He gives life that can't be equaled or duplicated by anything else. We can get shadows of life. We can get pieces of life that are temporary. But full, complete, satisfying life we can only ultimately get through Jesus Christ. And he gives it. He stands up and he offers it freely. If anyone thirsts, come to me and drink. Come to me and receive life. Come to me and receive satisfaction. People of Hiawatha, where are you looking for satisfaction in life? Is it in Jesus? People of Hiawatha, what voices are you listening to? What voices are you listening to in life to tell you things about life, about yourself, about the state of the world, about the state of existence and reality and all those things? What voices are you listening to? Is one of those voices and the primary of those voices Jesus Christ, the one who created all life, the one who created us, the one who knows us better than anyone or anything else, Are you listening to his voice? Hear what he says in John 14. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the truth. He's the one who can tell you truly about life, about yourself. He's the life. He's the one that gives life that's ultimate and full and satisfying. He is the way. There is no other way to God except Jesus Christ. We see here in these two verses from John 7 and John 14, both the inclusivity and the exclusivity of Jesus. Look at John 7, 37. What does he say? If anyone thirsts, let him come. Anyone can come. No qualifications, no requirements. If you're thirsty, come to Jesus. It doesn't matter who you are. And you don't have to satisfy your thirst before you come to him. You come to him thirsty. You come to him broken. You come to him hurting. You come to him in your sin. And he's the one who gives you to drink. But it's also exclusive. He says in John 14, I'm the only way. You'll never find the life that I can provide anywhere else. You'll never find the satisfaction I can provide in anything else. You can find glimpses and shadows of it. You can find pieces of it temporarily, but it'll always be unsatisfying. It'll always be ultimately unfulfilling. 
anyone can come. If anyone thirsts, let him come. But you'll never find it anywhere else. What voice are you listening to? Where are you looking for satisfaction in life? May it be in Jesus Christ, who provides those things in ultimate ways that cannot be provided anywhere else. Also, the dead coming to life. Let's look for a minute at Revelation 1, 17 and 18, what Jesus says about himself regarding that. He says, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. People of Hiawatha, fear not. Fear not. What are you afraid of today? There's much to fear, things to fear in our own lives, in our city, in our country, in our world. There are so many things we can look at and think about that cause us to fear. What fear or fears do you bring here with you today? Fear not. Why do we not fear? Because Jesus is alive. He says, I am the first. I was there at the beginning. I'm the last. I'll be there at the end. I'm the living one. I am alive. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. He says, I died, but I'll never die again. I can call myself the living one. I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys of death. Death now is like a door, and I can shut the door and lock it. And I can unlock it and throw the door open wide. You don't have to fear death anymore. You don't have to be afraid anymore. The reason we don't have to be afraid anymore is because God brings life. Because no matter what we have to suffer through and deal with in this life, we know that at the end, eventually God is going to shut the door of death and lock it, and it'll never touch us again. Everyone in this room, unless Jesus returns first, is going to die someday. But we don't have to fear that death, and we don't have to fear things in life because we know the living one, because he's alive forevermore. Our life came through Jesus' death. Don't miss that in these verses. He died so that we could live. He gave his life up so that we can live. We should have died, but he took our place. We deserve to die. We deserve punishment from God, but he took that and exchanged it and gave us life. And now he holds the keys. And don't forget, what did he just say in John 7? Whoever thirsts may come. He'll unlock that door and he'll lock that door for anyone. Anyone may come. People of Hiawatha, fear not. Our life comes through Jesus' death, the life that he offers us through his voice. And Jesus can lock and unlock the doors of death and Hades. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. There are two pieces to what this means for us, the fact that Jesus has life in himself. They're really cool. In John 10, Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my Father. So Jesus died and he rose from the dead. But someone else didn't raise him from the dead. He raised himself from the dead. Going back to the medical illustration, if, someone come, if a body is brought in, recently deceased, the doctor doesn't take the paddles, charge them up, put them in the dead person's hands and say, all right, you're going to want to shock yourself pretty soon. Like time is running out. This doesn't work forever. You better get on this. Time's ticking away. No, the doctor has to do it. If someone's dead, 
Someone else has to bring them back to life. You can't bring yourself back to life. But Jesus did. His life wasn't taken from him by force. He laid it down. And three days later, he picked it back up and rose. So strong is his authority and power that death couldn't hold him. And when he decided he was done with death, then he was done with death and he rose up and death couldn't do anything about it. Jesus doesn't need help to take up his life or rise from the dead. The life is in himself, not in something else or someone else. That's also good news for us because it means Jesus will never be in a position where he offers us life but can't deliver on the promise. If after church today I invite someone over to have lunch at my place and we go back there and when I invite you I say, well, I'm kind of short on beverages but I've got water. I can guarantee you there will be water for you to drink when we have lunch at my place. Now I can say that but technically I can't actually guarantee that. It's a very high degree of probability that it'll be water. But the fact is that the water in my place is dependent on other things. It's dependent on the city of Minneapolis. It's dependent on different infrastructure. And if any of that fails in some way, I won't have water. I cannot 100% guarantee that I can provide you water. Jesus can 100% guarantee and deliver on the promise of the life that he gives us. Because the life is in himself. There's nothing else he has to worry about breaking down or failing. Jesus will never come to me and say, you know, Jesse, that life I promised you, well, we had this like structural breakdown that I didn't see coming, and I'm really sorry, but there's this huge problem, and you're kind of on your own. We're working to fix it. Hopefully we'll get it worked out, but sorry about that. It'll never happen. Jesus offers us life, and because that life is in himself, he can always deliver on it. He'll never fail to deliver on the promise of life. He doesn't just give life in this passage. He also gets authority and executes judgment. Verse 27, And he, the Father, has given him, Jesus, authority to execute judgment because he, Jesus, is the Son of Man. Now, someone living at the time Jesus lived, a Jew who heard the phrase Son of Man, would think of a very specific thing. They would think of Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. So we're going to look at that for a minute so we can understand what they would have thought of when they heard the phrase Son of Man. That's a very particular phrase that had particular meaning for a Jew. So Daniel was a prophet in the Old Testament and he's having this vision and God showing him some stuff about the future. And in the vision, Daniel sees the Son of Man and these verses explain what happens there. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. We see here authority and power. Jesus is brought into the presence of the Ancient of Days, which is God. And then he's invited to sit down on God's throne and share in the dominion that God has, in the glory that God has, in the power that God has. And this dominion, this kingdom, this power, these are eternal. They'll never be destroyed. They'll never end. And this dominion and kingdom and glory, because of that, all nations, peoples, and languages serve the Son of Man. So that's what a Jew would have thought of when they heard this phrase. 
In the world today, we see many examples of authority and power. Many of them corrupted. We see authority and power abused in many ways, large scale and small scale, big ways and small ways. We see so much corruption with the use of power and authority. Not the case with God. Not the case with Christ. He receives power, the power of God. And what does he do with that power? He doesn't use it abusively. He uses it for our good. Remember, what's he doing in this passage? He's bringing life. He's giving life. That's how he uses his power and authority. We also see that he's able to execute judgment. We see judgment and justice miscarried all over the place in the world. We see manipulation of justice. We see bribery and other influence that makes, turns justice into injustice. We see biases that take justice and judgment and corrupt them. Not the case with God. With his justice, with his judgment, there's no bribery, there's no manipulation, there's no smooth talking that can get you by him. There's no bias. Jesus says, when I judge, I don't judge to please myself. I judge to please the Father. And because he's not judging to please himself, there's no bias because he's not concerned what people think of him as he's judging because he's not trying to please people and he's not trying to please himself. He's trying to please the Father in his judgment. This is what the Son of Man is. But this leads to a question. All right, Jesse, if Jesus is the Son of Man, which it says he is, and this description in Daniel says what the Son of Man is like and what he does, why don't we see all peoples, nations, and languages serving Jesus? If he's the Son of Man, and he's come, and he's presented this dominion and kingdom, and the result of that is that peoples, nations, and languages should serve him, why don't we see that happening? And there are two reasons for that. One, the dominion and the kingdom that Jesus receives is not a physical kingdom here on earth. Jesus says in the Gospels, my kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is eternal. His kingdom is spiritual. Now it has a physical component. We're going to exist as physical beings in eternity. But you cannot go to any location on earth and go to the palace of Jesus and walk in and see him sitting on the throne. It's not a physical kingdom. That's part of it. The other part is that Jesus is given this authority and this power to judge, but he chooses not to use it. In John 12, Jesus says, If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Why do we not see this happening? Because Jesus didn't come in the Gospels to judge. He didn't come to proclaim his judgment. He came to save. The judgment is there. It's still coming. Jesus says right after that in verse 48, The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Jesus says, I didn't come to judge, I came to save. That's why you don't see this happening. That's why you don't see me judging. But make no mistake, judgment is coming. On the last day at the end, there will be judgment. But now there's mercy. Now he still stands up and calls, anyone may come. Whoever's thirsty, come to me. In Revelation 19, there's a picture of Jesus coming back. At the end of Revelation 19 is near the end of the Bible, one of the last chapters of the Bible, and it depicts basically the end of history when Jesus comes back. And that picture of Jesus is not like the picture of Jesus we see in the Gospels. That picture of Jesus, it says his eyes are like fire. 
He has crowns on his head. His clothing is drenched in blood. He's riding on a horse. All the armies of heaven are behind him. And it says he comes to earth drenched in blood, eyes of fire, and he has a sword. And he takes that sword and he cuts down the nations. And he tramples them underfoot. And it says he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And there's another part, that's Revelation 19, there's another part of Revelation that talks about that treading and that trampling. And normally, when you tread a wine press, grape juice comes out because you're trying to make wine. And it says, when he treads that, it's not grape juice that flows out of the wine press, it's blood. Because he's trampling people. He's cutting down people. And it talks about how much blood that comes out. And to put it in modern terms, if you, after church today, leave here and you decide to drive to Duluth, Imagine that you're driving to Duluth and the entire way up 35 from here to Duluth, which is about 150 miles, there's a river of blood the entire way, all 150 miles. And it's so high that the blood is spilling over the hood of your vehicle. That's how much blood, it says in Revelation, comes out when Jesus tramples. That's a frightening picture of Jesus. It's a very good thing that when Jesus came the first time, he didn't judge. Because if he had, we wouldn't be sitting here because we wouldn't be alive. If he had judged when he came, it would have been the end for all of us. But he didn't come to judge, he came to save. He didn't come in that authority as the Son of Man and execute judgment. He came and executed mercy. He didn't come and destroy and let other people's blood flow out. He came and let himself be destroyed and let his blood flow out for us. Jesus could have come and judged and destroyed everyone, but instead he came and allowed himself to be destroyed so that we wouldn't fall under judgment. Jesus came not to save, but to, or came not to judge, but to save. But judgment is coming. We'll talk more about that at the end of the passage. Right now what we see is not the judgment, we see mercy. We see patience. There's a psalm, Psalm 73, where the psalmist is struggling and lamenting the fact that as he looks around the world, it seems like all the evil people prosper and all the people that follow God suffer. He says, why is it that the evil prosper? They're healthy and they have a lot of stuff and they live long lives and they enjoy life. And those who follow you, God, they suffer and they go without and they have illness, and they have sorrow. And then he says, I envy the wicked because of the lives they live. He says, in vain have we served God. It's vanity. Look at what we get from it. Look at how we suffer. And that's the first half of the psalm. And then he goes into the house of God to worship. And it says, as he walked in and started worshiping, he said, but then God revealed to me and I saw I saw why it's this way, because I understood the final destiny of those who are wicked, of those who are against God, of those who reject Jesus Christ. He says, they're enjoying life now, but this is all the enjoyment they'll ever have. They're going to be raised to the resurrection of judgment, and they'll never have enjoyment or pleasure or joy ever again. And now we suffer, which we should expect because Jesus suffered. And he said in the Gospels, if I suffered... Don't expect that you won't. If they persecuted me, if they caused me to suffer, of course they'll cause my followers to suffer. But someday our suffering is going to end. We're going to be raised to the resurrection of life. So the psalmist says, now I understand. It's not that God's unfair or unjust, it's that he's patient. He's allowing people to do this, to give them opportunity to turn to him. 
God says in the Old Testament, I, des- I take pleasure in the death of no one. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Rather, that they would turn from their evil ways and live. God is being patient. God is showing mercy. He did not come to judge the world. Jesus came to save the world. Take advantage of what he offers. Take advantage of the quenching of thirst that he offers us all. The last two verses. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. Those who have done evil to the resurrection of, just, of judgment. So, did you notice in verse 25 it says, an hour is coming and is now here. So that's ongoing now. Right now, Jesus is speaking words of life. Right now, Jesus is raising the dead. Right now, Jesus is calling people from death to life, spiritually. But an hour is coming that's not here yet. And for us, this is still in the future. There is going to be a future time when all who are in the tombs, all who are physically dead, will hear his voice and come out. Jesus is going to come back someday. And when he does, he's going to call out like he did to Lazarus. He's going to call out like he does to us. And every single person who has ever lived and died in all of history is going to raise up from the dead. Scripture says the sea is going to give up all the dead that are in it. The earth is going to give up all the dead that are in it. Every person who has ever died, every friend, every relative, every person throughout history laying in the ground, laying at the bottom of the ocean, every single person who has ever died is going to raise up at the word of Jesus Christ. That is power over death. Jesus calls out to Lazarus and raises him and says, you think that's pretty cool? But that's just one guy. That's just a foreshadowing, a taste of what's to come. Then he raises himself from the dead. And he says, you think that's really cool? Because it is. It's the coolest thing you'll ever see. But it's not the only thing you're going to see. Someday, we're going to see him call out, and with that one word, so powerful is it that every person who's dead will hear it and obey and come to life. Jesus is going to take that key to death and unlock that door and throw it wide, and every single person is going to walk out through that door. Everyone's going to raise from the dead. But those who have done good will raise to the resurrection of life. Those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And now you might think, whoa, Jesse, what's going on? I've been at Hiawatha for a while, and one thing you guys talk about every week is how it's not about us. It's not about works. It's not about what we do for God. It's about what God's done for us. It's about Jesus' death and resurrection. There's nothing we can do to get to God, but we don't have to because Jesus did everything. He calls to us. He paid the price. He shed his blood. All we have to do is believe. So it's like, what's this about doing good to the resurrection of life, doing evil to the resurrection of judgment. That sounds a lot like works. So it raises the question, what does it mean to do good in this verse? So last week's passage, the verse right before the beginning of this passage, tells us. And if you want to hear more about this, because it was just last week's, I'm not going to expand on it a lot. Go back and listen to last week's sermon, and Chris will expand on this some in the sermon. John 5.24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So how are you not raised to the resurrection of judgment? How do you pass from that into the resurrection of life? Hear the word and believe. That is what it means biblically to do good. That is what it means. Nothing else. What does it mean to do good for us? To hear the word and believe. That's it. 
It's the only thing. Now, it's not saying here that it's impossible for people in any way to do any good at all. Jesus even acknowledges that in the Gospels. He says, he's talking about a parent and a child. He says, if your, parent's hung, if your child's hungry and asks you for food, as a parent, you don't poison them. You give them a good gift. You are able to do good things even though you're evil. But those good things that we're able to do even though we're evil are not good things that get us merit with God. They're not good things that we can stand on when we stand before God someday and say, hey, I gave my kid food instead of poison. So because of that, you should let me into your kingdom. Hey, I did this, that, or the other thing. Because of that, you should let me into your kingdom. The only thing, the only good that matters for the sin and the evil that we have inside of us, for getting rid of that, for overcoming that, is Jesus' death and resurrection. Believing that, hearing the word, which you are hearing right now as I speak or as you read the passage, hearing that word and believing him, that's the only good. And even that good is not something we do alone. In the first verse, what happens? Jesus speaks and the dead hear. But how can they hear? They're dead. The ears of dead people don't work. So even before Jesus speaks to them, he's already working in them to make their ears able to hear. If you're here this morning and you don't yet know Jesus, Jesus is already working in you. You're here this morning because he's already working in you to hear his word and believe. So even belief is not something we do in of ourselves. He is the one who makes our ears able to hear. He is the one who opens our eyes to see. He's the one who enables us to believe. So hear the word and believe. But that also begs the question then, what does it mean to do evil? those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now, we can all think of a lot of examples of what it means to do evil. And it's true. The things we can think of are examples of evil. But there's an evil that we might not think of. So John 3.16, in the Protestant world, if you grew up in the church at all, probably the most famous verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And then the verse after, John 3, 17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. What we talked about before. Jesus didn't come to execute judgment, he came to save. But then there's verse John 3, 18, which says, and it's on the screen, Whoever believes in him, Jesus, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. What does it mean ultimately, biblically, to do evil? To not believe. To reject the word and the offer of Jesus Christ. To not believe in the name of the only Son of God. And don't think that there's some level of neutrality, that you can come in here and you're like, okay, like I don't believe yet, maybe I'm just hearing about this for the first time, or it's something I'm kind of exploring and thinking through, or I just ended up here and I had no idea what was going to happen because someone invited me. But don't think that if you're in that place, you're like, well, I haven't, I don't believe yet. I haven't decided that. But I don't disbelieve, right? Like I'm in the middle. I'm figuring it out. No, if you don't believe, Scripture makes it clear you're already condemned. These are Jesus' words from John 3. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. That's bad news. Because those who are condemned will face the Revelation 19 Jesus someday and he'll trample you underfoot. 
But there's good news in it. And the good news is all of us in this room were this person. All of us were the person that does not believe. We're the person that was condemned. I was the person that did not believe. I was the one who stood under condemnation because I had not believed in the name of the only Son of God. But as I was that person, Jesus called out to me, Jesse, you're thirsty. Come to me and drink. Come to me for life. Hear my word. I'm working to open your ears. Hear my word and believe and move from condemnation to life. And that same thing is available to all of us. If you're here this morning and you have not believed in Jesus Christ, you stand condemned because you have not believed. But be encouraged by the fact that you're here, and the fact that you're here means that Jesus is working. He brought you here, not to hear me because I'm such a great speaker and this was the most brilliant thing you could ever hear, but because you get to hear his words. You get to hear that he calls out and offers you life. He offers you satisfaction to every hunger and thirst and desire, an ultimate satisfaction that lasts forever. And those of us who do believe, this is something we still need today and every day. This is not something that we believed once a long time ago, and now life just goes on. We did believe, and we have that promise of life, which Jesus will make good on. But we need to hear that word of life every day. We need to feast and drink of Jesus Christ every day. That's why we have communion out every week, not just every month, to remind us that we need Jesus' death and resurrection. We need his body and his blood every day, not just once, not just once a month, but every single day. Those of you who don't believe, hear the word and believe. Those of us who do believe, hear the word and continue to believe. In conclusion, all of us, people of Hiawatha, hear the voice of the Son of God. We hear the voice primarily through his word, through the Bible, through scripture. We read it, we read words that Jesus actually spoke. We hear the voice of the Son of God. But that's not the only way we hear it. We also hear it through the body of Christ, through other believers, through the encouragement of other believers, through the wisdom of other believers. And sometimes... It happens not often, but it still happens that people may hear the voice of the Son of God audibly, supernaturally. As you're hearing my voice now speaking to you, you might hear the voice of God say something to you. That does happen. But if that happens to you, no, God would never say something to you in that way that would contradict the things he said in his word. So if you ever think that you've heard the voice of God audibly, double check what you heard with what scripture says. Talk with other believers and say, you know, I heard this, I think it was the voice of God, it said this. Does that seem like something God would say? Because God will never contradict himself. So if what you heard doesn't match what's in his word, if you talk to other believers and they're all like, uh, that doesn't sound like something God would say, that seems to contradict what he says in his word, then don't listen to that voice because the voice you heard was not the voice of God. It was a voice imitating God, but it was not the voice of God. Hear the voice of the Son of God. Believe. Hear and believe. That's all the good that we can do. And even that good is not done on our own and in our own power. Hear the voice and believe. And finally, rejoice. Rejoice that the Son has life in himself. Rejoice that he came not to judge but to save. Rejoice that he died and is alive and shares that life with us to save us from death. Rejoice that he holds the keys of death and judgment and he unlocks that gate. He unlocks death for any who come to him. Let's pray. Jesus, 
we thank you that you died and are alive, that you call yourself the living one, that you're alive forevermore. We thank you that you share that life with us, that you came not in judgment, but in mercy, not, in ju- not to judge, but to save. I pray, God, for all of us today and this week and every day that we would hear the voice of Jesus Christ and that we would continue to believe. Amen.